Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I want to welcome back Brian, the IV guy, for another episode. Hey, Brian. Hey, how's it going? It's good. It's good. It's a little different than the last time we talked a couple of months ago. Yeah. It feels like a year. It does feel like a long time. Well, a lot has changed for sure, but we have a good show planned for today. We have, we're going to talk just a, just real briefly about COVID just to kind of talk about, maybe honor some, some victims, some people who have died. And then we're going to talk about a bad phlebotomist. So you guys know Brian is the Ivy guy. He started out as a phlebotomist. That's why he's such an amazing resource for Ivy sticks. So I was really, it was really kind of interesting when I found this story because it just felt like it just kind of went along with the theme. So we have a, a bad phlebotomist and then we have a good phlebotomist. And I cannot wait to tell you guys this story because it's just, um, this person has an amazing, amazing life story. So I can't wait to tell you all about that. It's going to be a great way to end the show. But to start off, uh, Brian, first of all, thank you for coming back on the show. You are just a wonderful guest of and friend of the podcast. Anytime. Yeah. So you guys, Brian is, uh, he has an Instagram account. He has a Ivy course. Brian, what is your website? Uh, it's just theivguy.com. Okay. Theivguy.com. And then any uh, social media, it's just at the IV guy. Okay. So that's where you guys can find him. If you're interested, if you want to get better at IV sticks, I highly recommend going there. And so... Actually, throughout the pandemic, I, I reduced the price of everything. So Oh, wow. That's there's awesome. There's like 30% off for now. And and a bunch of facilities have been contacting me lately and, and nursing students trying to get hours. So I bet. Uh, if there's any any group, I'll do a, a larger discount. Just email me. That's awesome. Thank you, Brian. That's really good of you to do that because I know a lot of people are really struggling right now for like clinical hours. And your courses do, they count as C- CE, right? Yep. Everything counts okay. as CEs now. Awesome. All right. Well, so we want to just start out just real briefly and talk about the pandemic. And in, uh, specifically, we wanted to discuss some of the deaths um, of healthcare workers because I was just talking to Brian right before we started about how I've been seeing more and more articles, you know, news articles and posts on social media about nurses and doctors who have died from COVID-19. And it just got me thinking, looking at the pictures of, of these people who are, who were working right up until this, you know, right up until they got sick. And I was saying how I sort of, I think, had it maybe in my mind before that people who sort of are susceptible to getting COVID-19 are people who have underlying um, illnesses, comorbidities, but, and and that is true, but I think I was kind of thinking of someone who has chronic illnesses that are kind of go untreated, you know, not compliant with medications. These people look so healthy and they look like, you know, maybe somebody just happens to have asthma and they maybe take an inhaler, take some breathing treatments if they get like an upper respiratory infection or something like that. But yeah. maybe take they take high blood pressure medication. Um, they don't look like, you know, maybe the kind of people who come into the hospital who aren't compliant and um, just aren't taking care of themselves. What do you think about that? I mean, I think the comorbidities are underreported. So we probably don't know everything that was happening with most of these deaths mm. due to, to uh, privacy laws and, and maybe the family just doesn't want to put that out there. Yeah. Um, so there have been a few cases 
saying that, well, the only underlying health issue was asthma, at least the only underlying health issue that we can report. So maybe these people are more immunocompromised than than we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, at least all the ones that I've read have had comorbidities that were like uh, pretty severe asthma or diabetes mm-hmm. and or obesity. So yeah. um, it's just so it's so strange to think of these people working right alongside me at the hospital, you know, sure. and yeah. they seem to be fine. Yeah, maybe a little overweight or, you know, maybe having some some kind of issue they have to take medication for. Um, and then they get this this virus. And the next thing you know, they're on a ventilator. Um, I was looking on Instagram today and there was a one of my followers posted a picture of her preceptor. She works in IR and she posted a picture of herself with her preceptor and she said, please, you know, pray for him. He had, um, he's, he's in ICU on a ventilator fighting for his life. Oh man. Yeah. And it's just the, this, he just, I don't know, looks like the sweetest guy. And she said, he's just a wonderful person, a wonderful nurse. You couldn't yeah. find a better person. And now here he, you know, he was working to help people, working to try to help people with this virus, he ends up getting it. And now he's one of those people that are just in that awful, because from what I'm hearing, the people that are, that end up in the ICU on ventilators, these people are extremely sick. It's bad. Yeah, definitely. And from what the they've been saying, the, the cases tend to be worse with a higher viral load. So the more you're exposed, the, the worse that the case typically will be. Mm. It's really scary. These are really scary times we're living in and definitely don't want to just dwell on it. There's not, we can arm ourselves with as much education about it as we can, but when it comes right down to it, everything changed. This stuff is changing so rapidly. I can hardly even talk about it on this podcast without, by the time this comes out, there'll yeah. be so many different things. Definitely. It makes it interesting though. It does make it interesting. I could go all the way back a few weeks ago when I started talking about it, when I was saying things like, you know, so many more people die from the flu and that sort of thing. And now and yeah. now I'm just like, oh. It's still true. I know it's true. It is definitely <laughs> true. It's just that it was so much worse than I think anybody thought that it really was, you know. So, yeah. and all the changes that have come about and the, and I don't necessarily know that some of the changes are bad. I kind of like the people, you know, people staying home more. I think families are spending more time together. People are spending more time in their home, you know? There's been good side effects to it, for sure. Yeah. And then when it's all over, which it will be eventually, Mm -hmm. um, everyone's going to have a a much better appreciation for for how life normally is. Oh, that is so true. I know that for me, I'm in orientation right now where I work, and having family members at the hospital is definitely, it's something that I believe in. I believe in having family members for patients because they do have better outcomes. It's just been proven. But at the same time, as someone who's, I've been through orientation before because, you know, I was I was an established nurse before and then now I've moved into CVICU and I'm in orientation now. And it's it's nerve wracking enough taking care of someone in those, in the conditions that these people are. But when you have people <laughs> sitting there staring at you, watching everything you do, it just makes it so much harder. So yeah, that's, definitely. I have to say, I would not wish it on them. I, I don't want these people to have to be there without their family. I I would yeah. def, I would never say that. But it is, if I want to try to find the bright side, at least that's something that I can say that for me, while I'm in orientation, it's kind of nice not to have 
all these eyes on me watching everything I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Before we get started on the bad nurse story, I want to remind you guys to go to comradesocks.com to buy your compression socks and be sure to enter promo code GOODNURSE to get 20% off your order. And if you're not wearing compression socks, can I just ask why on earth you're not? They're so good for circulation. There's no way I would work without them. I've even started wearing them when I'm not at the hospital. They're just really comfortable and they help with circulation. So like if you're traveling or hiking or whatever, you know you're going to be standing for long periods of time. They're just great. And also, Comrade compression socks are high quality. They come in a lot of different colors and designs. So go to ComradeSocks.com today and enter promo code GOODNURSE. Well, I guess we can get into our bad phlebotomist story. Sure. So this story is, it's kind of like, well, and it's one of those cases where this person, whether or not she was a bad phlebotomist as far as how good of a stick she was or how, what kind of an employee she was, that's one thing. But it's sort of more in her personal life that <laughs> where, where things kind of went There may off. have been some character flaws. Yeah. Things went way off the, off the grid. So Kira did my show notes for me. She started, my, um, my executive business manager, Kira, that we just hired recently, she does our show notes and she cracks me up and I start <laughs> reading them because she just, she's kind of funny. She has a really funny personality and uh, she's cringing right now because she's sitting right beside me. But <laughs> she put, she put on here, who this story be about? <laughs> <laughs> So this is the story is actually about Julia Enright. She is the phlebotomist that we're talking about. She's from Ashburnham, Massachusetts. And guess what? Guess what city, large city in Massachusetts this is close to? Boston. Ah. Uh-huh. And the reason I say that is I feel like about every if not every other one at least once a month the bad story comes out of Boston. And I don't know why that is, but I found the story and I was like, oh, look, it's a phlebotomist. And I start reading it. And sure enough, it's Boston, Massachusetts. And I was like, I don't understand that. People are really going to stop. They're not going to believe me anymore <laughs> that I'm not Maybe it's doing the same thing. Like, like Seattle is cold and dark and northern and mm. Boston's kind of the same latitude. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a nice city. I've, remember, I've never been there, but I've heard that it's a really nice city, so I think there's a lot of good that comes out of there, too. (laughs) But for some reason, a lot of the bad stories come from there. But (laughs) Julia was 21 years old, and she she was a phlebotomist. She was known in her community for being quiet and sort of outdoorsy. She had a boyfriend, Brandon Chickless. He was 20 years old. He was living in Westminster, Massachusetts. He was a former Eagle Scout. He loved outdoors as well. He loved camping. He studied drafting in school, and he became an HVAC technician. Brandon and Julia dated sort of off and on. They kind of had like uh, one of those relationships where, I mean, they dated for a while and they would break up, but then they never quite cut things completely off. Well, they had to maintain the kink relationship. Yeah, I think that's that's what that was the point, and so because I guess not a lot of there's not a lot of people that that uh, they can find you know to go along with some of the stuff that that they were interested in. <laughs> True, that would be difficult on a dating app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> there probably are dating apps like that though. If you really think about it, I'm sure. It. <laughs> so on June 23rd in 2018, Brandon left his house to drive to New Hampshire. And he made plans with his dad that day. And 
his dad's girlfriend to join them for a belated Father's Day dinner. So his family ended up calling the police because he didn't show up for that. So actually, his car was discovered on June 29th in the parking lot of a Hannaford supermarket on Route 202 in Ringe, about 40 miles from his father's house. So then, then on July 10th, his body was discovered by a jogger about six miles from the supermarket on the side of Route 119. So the authorities determined that the death was definitely a homicide. So of course they start looking into what's what's happened here and you know who's the first person that they always look at usually whenever there's a death or then they think it's a homicide. It's gonna be the people who are closer closest to them, especially a girlfriend, a spouse, you know, someone that they were in a relationship with. So according to his phone records, the last place his phone was located was at a home in Ashburnham, Massachusetts. And that address happened to be where Julia and Wright was living. They had gone to high school together. And so they had known each other for a while. So police go to Julia and she told the police that she had made plans to meet him at her home on June 23rd and that they spent the day together. They had been drinking that day and that Brandon left her to go purchase drugs and never came back. I, I guess that sounded a little suspicious to them. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds fishy. Mm-hmm. The last place that his cell phone, you know, pings is her house. And then um, he left to go buy drugs. And so they get a search warrant for her property. And when Trooper Matthew Prescott searched her bedroom, he found documents, notebooks, business cards with her picture on it that indicated that she was a dominatrix and liked to participate in activities related relating to BDSM. What is that, Kira? <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I have answers, but I feel like it might uh, taint my my image as the IV guy. Let's just. I don't, I don't know what that, gee, I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know what it is. <laughs> just Google it. No, don't. Never mind. <laughs> Something tells me not to Google this. I would say just don't, don't go on the video section. No, definitely don't go the video <laughs> section. So, but she did have these, you know, business cards and all this stuff that could, they could tell that she was into this sort of thing, and would actually meet up with people, and she was paid to perform these types of services. Her notebook contained a lot of alarming ideas. She wrote that her relationship with Brandon was damn near therapeutic, she said. She said, I can be mean and rude to him or kind, and he'll initiate a warm hug and invite me back soon after. So they they had, this is different because it sounds like, I mean, he wasn't paying for her services, but she charged to treat people like this. Sure. Maybe he was the practice. He was sort of practice for her, I guess. Maybe. So she was, she's getting something out of it, clearly. Or why would she continue to hang around him if he's not paying her? And then, I mean, she says near therapeutic. I don't know. It's just kind of different. But <laughs> <laughs> she wrote casually in her notebook about her fantasy of killing someone. So this is sort of one of those situations where, you know, a lot of these stories, when it comes to people who just seem to like to kill for pleasure, 
they start off doing something and then it just sort of escalates. And that sounds like that's what happened with her. She started off, you know, doing these sorts of things. And, it, and after a while, that's just not enough. She wanted to go further. And she said she would daydream about it on occasion and would have an insatiable curiosity to kill a person. And in this notebook, she indicated that she wanted to cure the world of overpopulation. This sounds like, who's that comedian, Bill Burr, that talks about, he's like, he talks, I swear, he's he's so funny, but he's so dark at the same time. And he's like, you know, everybody should we should wipe out a bunch of people with like a pandemic or something. Do you know who I'm talking about? I just listened to that yesterday. Oh my gosh. That he's comedy hilarious. special. He's so funny. I mean, he's, he's one such of an people, angry person. He's so angry. And I'm like, <laughs> this guy is so scary. And I can't, like, I just cannot stop laughing. He's, he's just hilarious. But that's what this kind of reminds me of. Like, her mind works like that. Like, I want to kill. Yeah. The world's overpopulated. I mean, it's a great combination. <laughs> so they did find vials of blood in her house with different people's names on it. So I think she was somehow, when she was collecting blood... Oh, maybe. Yeah, a little, she like was, a Dexter kind of thing. Mm-hmm. She was, she would take maybe when she's collecting blood, she would maybe take a little extra, just a sample, <laughs> and then put their name on it and maybe stick it in her pocket and take it home with her. I guess that would probably. I guess it wouldn't be hard to do if you're a phlebotomist. No. Yeah. Nobody knows what you're doing. You just take in random. Definitely, you could draw a little extra and mm-hmm. still get the test done. Yeah, and then she was taking that home, so they did find that. So. Blood that matched Brandon's DNA was found in Julia's car. Surprise, surprise. And the neighbor's tree house. I like that it was a Prius. Oh, yeah. It had to be a Prius. Yeah. It had to be a Prius. She's earth conscious. (laughs) Well, she was in a Prius. Um, (laughs) And Julia and her boyfriend, John, would go into the tree house occasionally and would be seen by the neighbors. So they did. They, they saw this. And when they first searched the treehouse, it was really, really clean with a new rug. There was a receipt that they found that had what was dated after June 23rd. Under the rug, they found blood had seeped through the floorboards. And they found Julia's blood in the treehouse also. When they asked why it had recently been clean, because, I mean, if you think about it, who, who, <laughs> who scrubs and cleans a, a treehouse? I, I doubt people are scrubbing down their tree houses with bleach. But she said that they would cut each other and smear each other's blood on their bodies. And it was part of a ritual that they would do. Sure. So that, it's a good excuse. I mean, if you got to have an excuse, it's not a bad one, honestly, because she's kind of into that sort of thing. So <laughs> it's not that unbelievable, actually. No. So this is her answer to their questions. You know, what happened? How? Why is there blood all over the tree house? And they go through you know, finding all this evidence and they decide to arrest her and they did and they were holding her. They're actually holding her. She's, as of December, the last article I could find, she's still being held awaiting trial. And this happened in 2018. So I guess the criminal justice system is just sort of slow moving sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's our bad phlebotomist story. Quite the strange one. It might be the strangest story we've ever done on the show. I'm glad I could be a part of it. Oh, me too. Oh, before we get into our good phlebotomist, Brian, what are some of your bad phlebotomist stories? We'll just do like the worst one I ever saw. Because there were a few students and I'm, I'm generally very nice and I, I won't, I won't fail anyone. I won't send anyone home immediately, but. 
Aww. But this person, I definitely failed. We were drawing an ER patient, and um, I'm just there to observe the student. This is a real patient in a real hospital. And she puts on her gloves, she takes off the cap of the needle, and she did it in a way that made me think that maybe she had had poked herself while removing the cap. Ooh. And I'm looking a little closer, and I see blood t- start to seep under her glove. So her thumb was covered in blood underneath the glove, and there's a little hole in the middle. So she definitely stabbed herself with the needle that she just opened. Okay. And I look at her. She looks at me, and then she goes to draw the blood of the patient. I said, stop, don't move. What? Put your needle away right now and step into the other room. I'll do this draw. We'll talk later. And she denied everything, but I saw her stick well, herself and then yeah. go to stick the patient. Mm, that's so one of the scary. very few times that I actually failed somebody. Well, I, I'm glad you did because, I mean, that <laughs> that's one of those things where if somebody's willing to do that, it's... I mean, that's pretty egregious because you're talking about exposing that patient to... Exactly, yeah. You know. I get the stress. I understand that it's it's a scary thing. And you don't want to get in trouble, but... Yeah. Uh, exposing someone else goes above that. My goodness. It's really nerve-wracking have someone to have someone watching you. I was just talking about that. But even like a preceptor. You know, I have a preceptor right now, and he's an amazing preceptor. I just... I mean, he's just a wonderful nurse. He's just fantastic CVICU nurse. And he's a really good preceptor because he he will correct something or just be like, oh, hey, for, you know, next time do it like this or, you know, with charting, you know, don't forget to chart this or that. But he's like, he never does it in a way that's at all, you know, demeaning or, good, good. you know, discouraging. And so I never feel like, oh, I'm not. I'm not going to be good enough to do this or I can't do this because he's so encouraging. And that to me is, a you know, an excellent preceptor. But even though he's really good, I still get so nervous just having someone watch me do everything. I get, yeah. I've, I mean, I've been a nurse for almost five years and I've worked on a very busy, progressive, you know, step-down unit. And I feel very confident on that floor on PCU. I've been a team leader for a year and a half and I feel very confident in my skills. And if I, de- you know, I, I definitely don't know everything, but I feel so confident that if I don't know something, I can figure it out. I'll go ask somebody. I know my resources, that sort of thing. And I just, sure, you know, the nerves weren't there anymore and the anxiety about the job wasn't there anymore. Now I'm working on CBICU and everything is so different there. And I get so nervous and I'm like, wow, why did I do this to myself? <laughs> because, yeah. you know, it's just hard to change. It so. is. It's hard to build those new habits and break the old ones. And But yeah. having those preceptors, especially one that, that is as, um, I guess, accepting and, and yeah. good at teaching as yours, it's definitely helpful. Yeah. So we can get into our good phlebotomist story. I'm really excited about it. I'm, I was more excited about this one than I was the bad story just because <laughs> this guy is amazing. So this is about Thurston Gaines. He uh, did so many things in his life. One of those things was he was a phlebotomist. But the interesting thing about Dr. Gaines, and I say doctor because, yes, he was a medical doctor. 
But, you know, most people that maybe were a phlebotomist and a medical doctor or a nurse and a phlebotomist or respiratory therapist and a nurse or just whatever, you start out doing one thing and move into something else. Like maybe like you'd started out in phlebotomy and then decided, I think I would like to go into nursing. So Jamie of the First Do No Harm podcast, she is a nurse who is going to medical school. So now she's decided to become a doctor. So usually people start out in one field and then they want something more challenging. So they kind of move to, to a different area that maybe is a little harder. Sure. That's kind of the good thing about medicine. You can move pretty much anywhere, do anything. You can do something different. It's not necessarily that, you know, there are levels or that one is higher or better than the other, but anytime you, you know, learning more or learning a different field, it's just going to be, you know, some areas are just more challenging than others. But for most people would say, you know, you would start out as a phlebotomist, maybe then go to medical school. He kind of did the opposite, which is so cool. He started out as, um, well, he started out as a as a pilot because when he was younger, well, I'll just start from the beginning. He was born March 20th, 1922, and he died December 31st, 2016. So he lived a really nice, long life. And growing up, his he and his older brother were raised by his mother in Freeport, Long Island, in their grandparents' home, and she was a single mom, and he credits his mother for his work ethic, and they were the only black family in Freeport, and that was because the owner of that house sold the house to his grandparents to spite his neighbor. So at the time that he was, that when this was going on, that was a time when black people didn't live in the same neighborhood as white people, and, you know, white people of that of that day would look negatively on um, a black family moving in beside of them. And so this person who was selling the house didn't like his neighbor. And that's why he sold the house to this, the, his Dr. Gaines' grandparents. So that's why he lived there. And he, they were really the only African-American family that lived in this area. And he was the only African-American at his high school, you know, school growing up. And that definitely had, it had some advantages, but also it was, it was not necessarily the easiest because he wasn't necessarily treated equally, as you can imagine. And he was denied the ability to take college prep classes. He couldn't take algebra, geometry, that sort of thing. He had to take classes that were more aligned with going into areas of service instead of going into like a profession or going to college. What year was this again? Well, he was born in 22. So by the time, you know, I'd say the 40s, you know, by the time he got. So when he was a junior in high school, he met a young woman. Her name was Jacqueline Kelly, and they became friends at church. And he took the bus to her house every Sunday after church. And they both played in the band. He played the drums. She played the violin. And they always went to each other's recitals. The two of them married eventually, and they were married for 71 years. Wow. (laughs) I've just, I mean, that's just an amazing accomplishment. I just, I don't know. It's just, to me, it's unheard of, especially this day and age, but it's just crazy. In high school, he kind of was involved in lots of different things. And then when he graduated, he won the prize for the highest mark in government and citizenship because he was involved in so many different things. And he said it was sort of a vindication for him because it just kind of, he he basically was proving everyone wrong, you know, that he could 
do anything anyone could do. And it's just, it's kind of a shame if you think about it. It's, it seems ridiculous in the time that we live in now that that would have even been necessary. But that's that was the time that he was living in. So now he, because of that, he got a scholarship to Drake University, but he couldn't afford the bus fare to Iowa to be able to go. So he got a job in a clothing store and then a friend came home who had who was going to Howard University, and the friend was trying to talk him into going to Howard. So he decided, all right, I'll I'll do that. But he had to take algebra and geometry at night school, and then he had to he ended up going to Howard, and he went there during the day, and he would work in the cafeteria, and that's how he ate. So <laughs> this man just got to do what you got to do. I know, and he. He did whatever he had to do. That's what, when I was reading this story, I was like, wow, this man is just amazing. So many people, you know, would make excuses for not being able to do things. And sometimes rightly so. I mean, sometimes it's just, it's just too hard for some people, but he just had that extra grit in him, you know, that he was able to just push through all those hardships. So when the Army Air Corps opened in uh, Tuskegee Institute, a, uh, program to train black people, black men as pilots. He went and took the exam. And the first thing that he and the other men had to do before learning to fly was take physics, chemistry, algebra, and trigonometry. And of course, those were the very courses that he wasn't allowed to take in high school. So he just, at every turn, there was one thing after another that was just harder for him than, it, than anyone else. And you plus, know. that would have to piss you off as well. Oh, sure, now you want me to take him if you want me to fly planes. Yeah, of course. Well, two months later, he started training, and he graduated in August 4th, 1944. And he was deployed to the European theater, flying P-47 Thunderbolts and P-51 Mustangs. So on his 26th mission on April 15th, 1945, while flying a P-51 in the 99th Fighter Squadron, He went missing at about 2.30 in the afternoon, 40 miles out of Moldov, Germany, after he was hit by enemy anti-aircraft artillery fire. So the underside of the cockpit was hit, and he jettisoned the canopy, unhooked his harness, oxygen, and his radio set, and stayed with the plane as long as it would fly, hoping he could make it behind Allied lines but the plane crashed in Germany. So he was captured and he was held as a a prisoner of war there in Germany with 25,000 allied POWs, including 8,000 flying officers. And then he he was repatriated by Patton's 14th Armored Division. So this man, he's he's gone through a lot. I told you I was excited about telling the story because just amazing. We haven't even gotten to the part where he became a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And he just kept going. I know. So after the war, I mean, you know, for a lot of people, that's a whole lifetime worth of activity. <laughs> Just, Definitely. But after the war, went back to Tuskegee as a pilot trainer in, in the B-25 bomber. In the 1947, he enrolled in New York University on the GI Bill and attended Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. It's my old stomping grounds. He earned a medical degree in 1953 and did an internship and residency on Long Island, and he became a board-certified surgeon in 1959. 
he worked for 17 years as a medical examiner and then went into hospital administration. One major accomplishment after another. This man was just, he sounds like he was just like a top-notch individual and like He's definitely motivated. Just a wonderful person. And determined. So one thing that when I'm kind of reading through the story, because I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, at this at this point, he retired and he just basically wasn't happy not working and decided to work as a phlebotomist for a little while. Can you imagine this man just being a phlebotomist, going and yeah. drawing blood? And then it's he worked nice. as an instructor. Sometimes I think about doing the same thing. Like sometimes (laughs) I'll have like a really bad night as a nurse and just, I just want to take blood all night. Yeah. Just take blood. Just like, I just want to be, I just want to do tasks. I don't want to have to think. I like the Zen and the the task oriented nature of that job. Tell me who to stick and I'll stick them. Exactly. (laughs) I don't want to have to worry about whether or not this person's acute changes or something I need to notify Mm. the doctor about or yeah. He, I thought, I just thought that was neat because our good phlebotomist story is he, yeah, he worked as a phlebotomist for a while, but after he did all these other amazing things. So, yeah, I after just, he was retired. Mm-hmm. So, one thing that I wanted to just real briefly mention is the Tuskegee Institute because I feel like when I read this, that kind of jumped out at me. And Kira did the same thing when I was telling her about this story. And she was like, Tuskegee, is, is, it, is, it, is it, is it, is there not a negative sort of connotation associated with the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Institute? I mean, when I think about it, I think of the experiments that they were doing and they brought in all of the African-American people, males. It was men that they were doing that with, right, Kira? Oh, was that the prison study? Well, it wasn't prison. Uh, it wasn't prisoners. It was actually people in the community. They would pay them and not even very much money, but they paid them because they were so poor that any amount of money was a lot to them. And they would pay them to uh, inject them with syphilis oh. and then do studies on them. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, well, and the thing is, and I, I didn't do any research on this study because on this on that part of it because it really didn't pertain to this. Sure. But it's I just wanted to briefly mention it because it just stood out to me when I was reading it, and I didn't want to not say anything about it. But you know, that's in Alabama. You know, Alabama. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Not to stereotype an entire ten, you know. Um, sure, it was very state. different in the forties. I know it was very different in the forties. I live in Tennessee. Okay, so I have no room to talk. But the thing is, is in the South there were some very sketchy things that went on. But they went on all over the United States and all over the world. Unfortunately, this is not something that's. That was that only happened in the South. There was a lot of bad things that happened in the South and that still go on, unfortunately. But when I thought of this, when I this sort of jumped out at me, like, oh my gosh, the Tuskegee, what do they call them? Tuskegee trials or something like that. Anyway, they did some experiments um, and they lied to these people and basically misled them. And they didn't know that they were really going to get syphilis and they got really sick. And it's just That's awful. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that before. Yeah. Now, and not that that has anything to do with this, and I really, you know, I didn't necessarily want to muddle the story with that because (laughs) he worked there. So, and it wasn't anything negative about Tuskegee. And I don't, the thing is, I learned about that in nursing school. So it's just, um, I don't know anything else about that institution. It may be a wonderful institution that does a lot, that maybe they've, you know, done a lot of things to make up for that. I don't know. 
So <laughs> I just thought I would mention it. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on for another Anytime. Good Nurse, Bad Nurse show. Is there anything yeah. you need to talk about or say or announcements what are you doing right now because i mean you can't do i know i i was in the middle of filming a whole new section which is actually uh or a whole new video course um called phlebotomy for nurses so i'm almost done with it but at this point um at least in the area that i'm in we have we're pretty much locked down if you go anywhere without a reason you can actually get a misdemeanor at this point oh they've started that yeah yeah well, so they they haven't quite gotten there. Yeah, you really are. Pause for now. They haven't gotten there here, but w- Tennessee's a little slow on the uptake when it comes to this sure. sort of thing. It's a red state for sure. So we like our personal liberties and our freedoms yeah. more than you know lives and <laughs> you know <Sure>. people. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, it took us a while before. And actually, it took a lot of physicians in the state of Tennessee petitioning the governor and putting pressure on him to say, okay, yeah, I guess we should do a lockdown. Oh, whatever, you know. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Well, the thing is that the projections that that were initially on the charts have definitely, the curve has definitely flattened. And I do think that it is because of all of this inactivity that's going on and, the, and people being more aware and wearing masks everywhere, which is so weird seeing people running around with these homemade masks and everything. So it's kind of funny. Are you? Do you yeah. see people with a lot of homemade masks where you are? Nowadays, uh, like maybe a week ago, I didn't see very many masks. Uh, now pretty much like 90% of the people I see in the grocery store are wearing masks. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm kind I guess of trying to stay out of there. Everybody's just trying to follow the CDC, you know, guidelines and sort of. I feel I like get most it. of this I was mean, brought on by fear mongering by media maybe. and whatnot. But oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of that. It, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. It's kind of hard to know what to believe about it. And I, it's kind of like if everybody's doing the social distancing and and doing what the recommendations are to try to flatten the curve. So then the curve is flattened. Then everybody's going to look back and say, oh, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought, you know. True, true. When in fact, if we hadn't done all this stuff, maybe it would have been as bad as they were projecting it to be. And it's maybe it's it's almost impossible to know. Sort of lengthen the the duration. Mm -hmm. Because it'll take longer. Yeah. Yeah, it may take much longer for uh, this to die out, but we'll see. it kind of stinks, you know, it's, it's, it's not, um, Kira and I were just talking the other day about how we had kind of gotten into this. We were kind of traveling. I was doing some speaking at different places and she was going with me. We were really yeah, kind of yeah. getting on a roll. Yeah, me too. And I was just like, shut down. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, Brian, if we ever get to a point where we're back to where we can travel and stuff, hopefully we can meet up and sure, do, yeah. That'd be do great. a little meet up, maybe do like an IV class slash good nurse, yeah. bad nurse live show or something like that. Yeah. I think that would I'm be so I'm hoping to do fun. live classes by the end of the year, but that may be pushed a little bit due to all this stuff, but we'll see. Maybe we can do an online, I don't know, something. I feel sure, like we're yeah. just, there's something we could do the even during before. this time. Sure. <laughs> Well, thank you, Brian. Well, you guys, don't forget to look him up on Instagram at the Ivy Guy or on his um, website and check out his courses. They're awesome. And also, you can come find me at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Instagram or Good GMBN Podcast on Facebook. Or you can come to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. 
And I just want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Thank <laughs> you.